Welcome back. You're listening to another episode of The Todd Donald Show, a weekly podcast where artists and performers go to chat about nothing. Hosted by Canadian singer-songwriter Todd Donald. Hi, welcome back. I think the intro explains it best, but as is the case with anything at all, the show is, of course, evolving through time, becoming a better version of itself, writing daily affirmations, learning hashtags. Well, I don't hashtag. And it's in a state of evolution. It's a show where fellow artists and performers and I chat about nothing, but we also break apart and unpack pop culture or we'll split the atom on the creative process and our own inner workings and approaches. Sometimes we'll bond. Sometimes a new friendship is born or longtime friendship is further cemented. Other times, as has happened in the past, I guess we'll be nice enough to be on, but ends up joining a secret We Hate Todd Club for no Lord knows what reason, and I never hear from them again. But that is certainly not the case with this episode's guest. That is Mary Catherine Bizzano, the star of episodes 28 and 29, a renowned Waterloo Region-based, classically trained jazz vocalist and teacher among songwriter, recording artists, and references are available upon request. With Mary's last appearances on this podcast, what you can listen to already is we covered a lot of things about our wonderful Waterloo region, venues, of course, music, jazz music. Mary's work as a vocal teacher, recording and releasing her debut album, You're Gonna Hear From Me, and much more. And all that, I believe, is well covered and then some in episodes 28 and 29 with MCP. Please feel free to listen back to those on your own time. Both episodes joined by a pair of songs performed live off the floor by Mary, and they're so good. So... Last month over Zoom, the internet application, Mary Catherine Bizzano and I reconvened after a year and chatted from across the world in two time zones full of pandemic stink to continue the conversation. Bookended by two more lovely live performances by MCP is us having a wonderful and warm as freshly baked cookies conversation, nerding out about silver screen era films and segueing slowly into the story of young Mary that ends with her and her now husband, Dana Carvey George Harrison. (laughs) What do I mean by that? I guess you'll have to listen for the reference. Thanks again for agreeing to listen to this episode, everybody. Enjoy the return of Mary Catherine Pizzano. Thanks for coming on the show again, Mary. Thanks for having me. Now, this time is going to be a little bit different. Not only are we not in person, it's the quarantines. And before we get into anything, I want to share one of the two lovely performances that you sent me. And uh, oh, thanks. we're going to nerd out a bit on this one. That's sort of uh, what we've been talking about, right? Hells yeah. She is broken and won't be square. 
Okay, so that was you performing She Used to Be Mine. That was amazing. Thanks. <laughs> I uh, love that song. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, it's um, from a musical that was just recently on Broadway called Waitress. The score is by Sarah Brellis, who I love. All right. Um, I've always loved that song because I think it just encapsulates this previous version of yourself that you've maybe lost track of along the way. The lyrics started to really resonate with me in this quarantine because it's like, she is gone, but she used to be mine. It's like my whole life has turned upside down, you know, like how I identify myself as this performer and this singer who makes their living with people there. (laughs) Right. Um, When I'm feeling the loss of that, those lyrics really resonate with me. So, yeah, I thought I would pull it out for your show. I'm going to save this for the end. But you sent another performance, which, given what you just said, is quite literally in the title, Take Me to the World. And I'm sure everyone out there is thinking, I want to go to there. I want to be around people in normal times. But I also picked it, obviously, the title and the lyrics are like totally reflective of what we're currently living. But it's Mm. also very recently Stephen Sondheim's 90th birthday. So I thought we'd give a little nod to to Stephen because he wrote that. Well, there you go. Here's the thing. As a child, I um, watched cable and it wasn't hard to yes. find. It wasn't hard to find black and white movies, classic movies. I've carried that with me every now and then. I didn't seek them out until more recently, but I would just appreciate seeing that era. You've been on the show a couple of times before. I've always loved having you on. 
And I happen to know that you're, I would guess, a lifelong fan of classic cinema. You know, that is a kind of accurate because maybe I've told the story. And if I have, sorry. <laughs> the first movie that I think I watched as a kid was The Wizard of Oz. And I was like months old, apparently. Mm -hmm. From then on, the only thing that would shut me up if I was crying was this music box that played over the rainbow. And then apparently when I would watch movies like The Sound of Music as a kid, like I would in the park, like be Maria and I, I would like act out. I have confidence by myself <laughs> and sing <laughs> I have confidence. So <laughs> I think you're right. It is lifelong. And like it started with musicals, but then it evolved into classic film in general and film in general. I love all film, but classic film has a special place in my heart for sure. It's wonderful to just adore these performers and what these movies tell us about, you know, the dynamic of men and women at that time, mothers and daughters, mm -hmm. etc. And yet from our viewpoint now, we could look back and be like 1931 and 1939 are so mm -hmm. close together. But at the time, hundreds of movies were made before they were like able to record better dialogue. Yeah, like think about the early 30s and then everything they achieved that's problematic but and gone with the wind like eight years later mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like it's mind-boggling how fast the industry adapted i guess like when you look at it but yeah you're right there's all those movies in that time of transition too and then what was it like the late 50s that they had color well that even started late 30s because wizard of oz is half technicolor okay and that's 39 Gone with the Wind is all color, 39. Right. There's so much I don't know. And Stanley Kubrick's first movies up until Spartacus in 1960, that was the first one that he put out that was in color. So there still was a lot of silver screen happening. Totally. Like even the, Dana and I last month watched a really cool Gregory Peck movie called, um, oh, what was it called? Mirage. And it was made, I think, 66 and was still black and white. Wow. It's almost like they started to, you know, decide, okay, what might be best served by being color and what's artistic to keep in black and white, you know? It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I was getting into the classic Universal Monsters and I'm like, maybe I should get a couple selections for myself that aren't monster because I'm really digging the time, but it doesn't need to be all monster. <laughs> and that's somewhere I've never delved. I've never really watched the monster movies at all. Right. Well, it's just fascinating historically, like where they were at, right? Like, as you say, right. like... 31 and it's like okay they weren't even scoring it because they had so much tape hiss and so little dialogue that they couldn't probably even put a score over top of that right like yeah. that's just so interesting <laughs> and it was the same with frankenstein which came out the same year but bride of frankenstein was 1935 and it had a score it had special effects that i you know how in so many movies made much later like the special effects are so yeah. cheap and bad in the 80s in 90s that you can tell what they did there's some stuff with shrunken people in jars you can see in bride of frankenstein that like that's better than some of the shit in mary poppins and mary poppins is kind of mind-blowing because you're like you know i couldn't do that right yeah. oh, it was so true like the the ingenuity that they had i love i used to not really watch a lot of the 30s movies because to me it was so archaic in terms of how movies evolved right <laughs> but i find it fascinating now because it's like oh wow they were like playing with that there they were setting the stage for that there or like for mm -hmm. me how they captured a musical number and how that changed like how how the art of the camera evolved so it's, it's so fascinating to watch 
the seeds of it all get planted in the 30s. So interesting. If you don't mind, I'm, I did want to have this be part of the podcast. Like I wanted to have us talking about these films. No, yeah, we can keep talking about it. Because we're totally nerding out and I love it. But the seeds of Betty Davis's career were in the 30s, right? Absolutely. That's where she started. Would you say it was the 40s where she was really at the top of her game? or She's tricky because she won her first Oscar, I think, in 35. So she definitely kind of made herself known, I would say, in the mid-30s. And by the late 30s was one of the top stars. Mm-hmm. But for me, I love her films of the 40s. Right. And I'm pretty sure Dark yeah, Degree, I, which is the other one. I No, that's 39. Shit. Yeah, that's such a classic soapy thing. Anytime I think of Silver Screen, I think of you and the fact that um, <laughs> I don't know a lot of people that aren't my dad that think they're... <laughs> Wonderful and amazing. Would it be right to assume that you're like me and that I should know well well enough by now and I do? It's a thing of being able to appreciate filmmaking and performing while not condoning the gender dynamics and racial dynamics of the time. Yes, totally. Also, definitely the racial dynamics. But for me, the gender dynamics of the old movies are fascinating. I always love when I watch a movie and like the woman gets star billing above the man. Like, I love that so much. It was all about the business, right? Like if she was a bigger box office draw, then they were going to put her first. Like it was all about the business. It wasn't because she was like this powerful figure. But her celebrity had power, which is very interesting to me. Right. To hear like the struggles, you know, they were confined to a lot of the time these scripts, you know, that like the evolution of the woman is that at the end you want her to be married and like have a kid and like. Right. (laughs) But a lot of the time their journey to get there is where the great scenes are, right? Like if they're asserting themselves or now Voyager is a great example of like she doesn't end up with someone, but she becomes this more evolved person. And that they were called women's pictures. So that was like supposed to be what would happen to me. Like the actress often transcends the material and like, will put a feminist slant on it, whether they knew it or not. And I find that kind of stuff really fascinating. Yeah. There were certainly threads of that in Um, Voyager for sure. Yeah. Like she's some, her character somehow wronged in the way too, that she, by loving this person who's married to someone else, she'll never be able to find love again. Like that's kind of (laughs) part of it. Right. But at the same time, she, you know, became this kind of badass woman who found her own power and found her own voice and doesn't feels like she doesn't need a man at the same time. So there's like both sides of the coin, right? It's funny how well in the oldie movies, uh, as as I look at them, how, how would we summarize the character of Betty Davis's mother in Now Voyager? A word that I don't know if I can say on this <laughs> podcast. It rhymes with chunt. Uh, <laughs> She's uh, the worst. She's the worst ever. Yeah. I think I was, I don't know, I don't know. I was I was a one digit age. The first time that I saw Cinderella 1955 or whatever, the Disney film. Oh yeah. Still my favorite Disney film of all time, just because it's ingrained in my youngest age. The stepmother in that movie, her voice, the actress and the uh dimmed, bright-eyed shots still send shivers down my spine and and makes me <laughs> <laughs> like like my hair stands up and I cringe. The biological mother of Betty Davis's character in Now Voyager also had that. There's something about old movie scary moms that chill. They just chill. And, and then think of uh, Carrie, 1970-something. Yeah. <laughs> when I took an interest in seeing films by Betty Davis and needed to make a decision, you recommended to me Now Voyager. I really, really enjoyed yes. it. That was yeah, I want to know what you thought. 
Well, I, I definitely <laughs> thought it was interesting when I, if, if you were just to pay attention to the thread of her relationship with her mom and, mm-hmm. and just see like the toll that her life of abuse took on her. Like when you see Betty Davis's character in the beginning of the film, she's very mm-hmm. much that hermit, like not aware of her own beauty or strength or intelligence. She's just very submissive at this point because, you know, she's mm-hmm. in shell shock from uh, all these years of this life of abuse. Yeah. So, so closely tied to someone who's convinced her that she's worthless, a burden. And, and then you pay attention to that thread throughout the course of the movie. Obviously, Betty Davis' character sort of spends enough time away with the right help and the right people. She becomes her own person. She's, she has to go back and live in this house again with the same person and play a delicate balance of you know not taking the abuse anymore, but also not uh, shocking her mom and all this. And I just found that fascinating to watch. And later on, her mom is going to be disappointed to find out that she dumped this rich guy that she wasn't even in love with. And uh, right. I had this moment where I thought to myself, I'm so glad such a thing like that is so old fashioned and wouldn't happen today. But wait a minute, I'm sure that still does happen. It's wild. Yeah. And I remember when I first watched the movie and she, I forget his name, but he's like such this like wet doormat of all time, this guy. And I just thought, oh God, please don't end up with this guy. <laughs> Because the whole point of the, you're watching the movie and the whole point of her is to, is that she's so self-assured now. She doesn't need this idiot. You know, I love that scene where she's just like, yeah, you know, we're both adults and I don't actually want to be with you. We don't need to be with each other. Like It's such a sophisticated end to it too. Like you can tell how much she's grown. Like she's not relying on him for anything. Yeah. Like the romance part of it, I think was still just in some way, more an ingredient in telling the story of her character. I think her character stood even above the romance. and um, Exactly. That's what I love about it. For me, romance, while it's a beautiful thing in, the, in life, in the world, in humanity, I don't think of it as a genre. Right. And some movies cheapen the fuck out of it as like, the, okay, well, the, the romance in this movie is going to be about 75% lard and or cheese. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, exactly. Well, what I love about it is in the end, she's stronger than him. Like, right. Kind of the storytelling thread of it is the fact that he gives her love in the beginning. I mm. mean, that's kind of cheesy in itself, but it gives her the strength to kind of stand up against her mom and be more self-assured. And then in the end, she's telling him, no, this is how it has to be. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like she's she has the upper hand in that situation. And I love that trajectory for her, her character. Right. I would totally have cued like a Beyonce song after she spoke in that scene. Yes. Sorry, you were saying something more interesting. Well, what I like about his character too is, you know, he's a victim of circumstance, I guess. I mean, he had the power to leave if he wanted to, but... Well, yeah, yeah, he's a a man. (laughs) Exactly. But I don't view him as weak at the same time. I view him as kind of this tortured person. Right. Who just feels stuck where he is. And I think a lot of us feel that way. But I love in the end, like that classic line, like, oh, Jerry, don't ask for the moon. We have the stars. Like, we can't have everything, but we have to be happy with what we have. I just love that. She's so strong in that moment, even though all she wants to do is she wants to end up with him. Who would? Right. But she knows it's not right. Do you love that, too, about classic movies, how people embrace the use of metaphor in communicating emotions and thoughts. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the censorship of the code that they were operating under. Right. You look at the Hitchcock movies of the world and everything, how he subverts (laughs) the code is 
fascinating, right? Like, I don't know if you've watched much pre-code stuff, like the stuff before 33 or before 34. I haven't, although there's a scene that they may or may not have cut out of other versions of Frankenstein, the 31, where he, he throws this little girl in the water to see if she'll float and she doesn't come out. Oh my like, God. Uh, yeah. Did you drown a real life girl for this movie? It's 1931. <laughs> People aren't going to know. What the fuck did you do? Maybe they did. <laughs> <laughs> But I find that fascinating, too, because like the reason in now Voyager, they don't end up together is because of the code, right? They're like, well, no, this guy's married. You can't end up with right. this guy. But mm-hmm. what I love about that is it makes her character stronger. So to me, that's that's so badass that that is how it works out. But it's a, a victim. It's a circumstance of it being censored. Like right. the kisses couldn't be longer than two seconds. Hitchcock gets around that, but it's like, okay, then I'll, I don't know if you've seen the movie Notorious, but I'll be honest. I haven't seen any Hitchcock yet. Oh my gosh. You have to you'll like be addicted, but there's this one scene, this one kissing scene in Notorious and it's Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And he's like, okay, if I can't have them kiss for two seconds, then I'm going to have like this string of kisses. That's like, like a millisecond each. It's, it's so sensual. And it's so it's more exciting than if you were to just see this like um, blatant sex scene play in front of you. It's how they kind of worked around restrictions that came. There's so much creativity came from that. I just love um, classic film noir, black and white, period. I love classic acting style and certain eccentric people like, God damn it. What was the name of the... Jimmy Cagney? Yes. The Jack Nicholson (laughs) of his time, if you will. Yeah, totally. (laughs) How eccentric is that? And for some reason... While you're telling me that in this era, you couldn't see a husband and wife uh, fully or laying down on a bed at the same time. And yet there's all these James Cagney movies where he smacks a woman (laughs) across the face almost five times in a row. That's not problematic. That's just perfectly normal. Yeah. It kills me to see like what they thought was fine. Like they could drink themselves under the table. There's never a movie where they're not drinking. Yeah. They're smoking. Oh my God. The smoking in now Voyager. Oh, the, the cigarette moment. Doesn't doesn't now Voyager make you want to smoke, even if you find it disgusting? They make smoking sexy and romantic. <laughs> I know, it's so Let me bizarre. light two and hand you one. The classic. Yeah, I know. Oh. It's like, whoa. Like 40s erotica. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I talked with you about this last time. There is a venue, you know, for post-quarantine times. Look forward to that. There is a venue in K-Dub that sort of mm-hmm. aligns itself with that era. Like go see a silver screen flick. You, you go to the pictures and then you could go to this place in downtown Kitchener that I have not been to. Fill me in. What is well, it's place? a secret it's place, isn't it? It was trying to exploit that really cool essence of having a password to get in. Or Oh, uh, yes, the speakeasy. See, uh, it's called Sugar Run Speakeasy. Okay. And you perform there. Yeah, I had a... Before all this went down, uh, I had a standing Tuesday night gig there. Yeah. Nice. So I've had you on twice before, and I do enjoy talking about things, events, places, songs, pop culture. And I really enjoyed talking about some pop culture with you now. But I don't know anything about how you became the person that you are today. And I'm interested to know. I genuinely am. And this is how I'm doing most of my interviews now. Who was in your house growing up? I grew up with my mom and dad and my little brother. Are you the younger sibling? I'm the older one. The older one? Are you the elder sibling? I'm I'm the elder, sole eldest sibling. 
how were you introduced to music as a thing? You know, such an interesting, interesting question because I don't come from a musical family necessarily. Like my mom and dad aren't, my mom has a nice voice and my dad can carry a tune and my mom can play piano a little bit. It wasn't like, you know, you hear some stories of people who come from a musical family, like music was yeah. around them constantly in their house. And that wasn't the case for me. But I was always drawn to music. I guess like if I if I heard something that was played, like I'd kind of apparently I would lean in. Right. I'd kind of stop what I was doing if I found it. It must have been ingrained in me somehow. Some of my most formative memories, we spent a lot of time with my grandma on my mom's side growing up because she lived in Mississauga and my mom decided when my brother was really little that she was going to go to teacher's college. So we kind of moved in with my grandma for about a year while my mom was in teacher's college and she would commute from Mississauga to Toronto. And my grandma played piano and she found that a great release. She kind of had a hard life in the sense that my aunt, so her eldest daughter was developmentally delayed in a time where nobody understood it and nobody had the research to understand how you raise a person like that, or it was very stressful for her. Music was an outlet for her. And so I have a lot of memories of being like two and a half, three years old, sitting on my grandma's lap while she played and I would sing along. And like, I still have, I actually have it framed over. I'm just looking at it right now. Sheet music of the muffin man. Cause we would sing that together all the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> And there's actually a picture, I think I'm about eight weeks old, and she came to visit at my parents' house, and she's holding me, and I'm wide awake looking right up at her, and she's playing this keyboard, and I'm just like in awe of watching her play at like this little tiny little baby. <laughs> I guess music from the beginning was something that I was drawn to, and mm -hmm. I don't know why, I don't know why to this day why, but it was definitely part of me kind of out of the womb. <laughs> That's amazing. Like that relationship with music had nothing to do with a goal at that point or a dream, an no. aspiration. I might be jumping too far ahead or too far out of the same realm, but what would you say was your biggest dream? What was the biggest thing that you thought, oh, that would be nice? You know, I don't know if I was cognizant of having a big dream. I wasn't one of those big dreamers like you know how you hear some people like, I was always destined to be on Broadway. Right. Like, I don't recall thinking that way. Mm -hmm. For me, and this is maybe still true to this day, like watching someone perform music on a screen, I would want to be involved some way. So I'd like try to do the choreography <laughs> or right. I'd like sing along to the point where like at five years old, I could like recite all those songs and those movies word for word. And right. I guess that was kind of freaky. Part of me thought that every other kid was doing the same thing. Because at my school, they were they were auditioning for choir, for choir. like people could audition to be in a choir. <laughs> and I just thought, well, everybody's going to go audition. Like, that's just what's going to happen. It didn't even register to me like, no, MC, like some people play sports. <laughs> and like <laughs> some people do other things as, other than watching Meet Me in St. Louis for the 50th time and you trying to master the umbrella choreography. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? <laughs> and I showed up to that audition and like sang it a song like um i think it's an arthur freed song um i like new york in june how about you like who does that a, a child of the 90s singing this 1940s song but to me mm -hmm. that was totally normal so i think i had this warped sense of reality the time that i kind of realized that it was different was the way my teacher reacted to me singing in my audition i was just doing my thing like i like new york in june how about you i could see her face like what the fuck <laughs> 
<laughs> who is this person who's singing this and at the age of eight and I, you know, I could sing in tune and I didn't know that was a skill. But like I right. had this cool tone and then I could sing. I don't think that any high school casting department is prepared for anything less than a huge struggle. <laughs> if you're going to imagine. Yeah, right. But this was like grade four. <laughs> like this is like how weird it is. Even uh, even more right. so to that. <laughs> yeah. So then I got put in the choir and they gave me a solo at the Christmas concert. Then I kind of got the bug because mm. this shy girl who kind of just went along in, in life and I didn't have a lot of friends. I was pretty introverted. I was kind of in my own kind of internal reality of what the world was like. So then to sing, like I remember stepping up and singing the first Noel and like for the first time, it felt like people were coming up to me and like acknowledging me. That sounds pretty sad, but it's true. Like, you know, like, no, I was like, maybe this is something that moves people. Like I could just see the way people were reacting the exchange of audience and performer started to become very addictive to me. She has value. We see her now. Yeah. And in a way that's kind of fucked me up for life because now we're in this quarantine and my identity is singing for people and I can't sing right. for people. Oh. <laughs> right. So, uh, so it, it, that's, it is, it's addicting, but it's also like what people I'm kind of known for that now. Right. Like, oh, mm-hmm. like you, if I were to die tomorrow, like people would remember me as a singer first, I think, I don't <laughs> know, but I think it's just really interesting to think about how those childhood experiences are so mm. influential and in how you define yourself and how what stake you put in your own identity is just very interesting. Well, please just know that that was really long winded. No, you're the guest. This is what I want more of that. <laughs> I finally let it happen and, and, and I got gold as far as I'm concerned. But I hope you know that outside of like your partner and your family and your already close friends, that you definitely have a friend in me that knows you first as a really cool person who, when you do sing, are fucking exquisite with it. But you're definitely, first and foremost, a cool person, a wonderful person. Thank you. What was the relationship of your parents with getting that bug? Were they uber supportive, too supportive, not supportive? Were they saying, we thought you were going to be a lawyer, this you love singing thing, (laughs) not good. They got a lawyer out of my brother. So, <laughs> lucky enough. So, 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 you being a disappointment is not really a big deal because it kind of balances right. out. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I think part of them always knew that that would happen. I think that it wasn't a surprise to them. I remember this really clearly sitting in my family room with my dad and saying really casually, because I was kind of scared to say it out loud, like, yeah, I think I'm going to go audition for the choir. I didn't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> um and he said to me yeah i'm gonna go i think i'm gonna let's make a show no but my dad said to me i remember him locking eyes with me he's like yeah you do you have a really good voice like you should do that mm-hmm. and from there i just remember them being really proud and i didn't they didn't push me which i think was so good like i was actually you know, when they enroll you in as a kid in lessons, like right. the first thing that I think a lot of parents would have done is enroll me in voice lessons and be like, okay, now we have to groom her. Now that she has this talent, we have to like tap into it and like do everything we can with it. Blah. They kind of thought that if I suddenly had this obligation to be devoted to my craft, that it would take the joy out of it. And I think they were really right about that. That's so funny. Um, one, of, one of the recent guests, JP Sunga, 
he sort of had the same thing. Like he didn't pursue music for a long time because, you know, his parents put him in lessons and it, you definitely experienced that as well. I definitely experienced that. Yeah. I didn't have my first voice lesson until I was maybe 16 and a half, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I wanted to go to school for music, but I wrote on the coattails of my natural talent for a long time. Right. <laughs> But I think that's good because I developed my own voice myself before it was kind of molded by anybody else. What I actually had lessons in as a kid, I was a ballet kid. I wasn't good at all. I took ballet lessons and I have very few joyful memories of that. So it's so interesting. Like the thing that was the obligation, like every Monday night I had to go to my ballet class. Right. I didn't take a lot of joy in that. But my refuge was, I think, because there was nothing associated with it except what I wanted it to be. Like mm -hmm. music was always the joy. That's excellent. When it came to dating and and those boys, as they were at one point, <laughs> I'm sure, were did being a performer or being in love with music, was that something that you felt you could use? Or were you confident enough at that point to start putting yourself out there? I, or you know what? I was <laughs> let me be amateur. Tell me about your dating life when you were younger. <laughs> Um, non-existent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I was still a pretty shy person. I was like this shy person who wouldn't, wouldn't say a lot. Now I've become like this extroverted person, but as right. a young person, even I would say throughout high school, I was the shy girl who like did well in school. I was the good student. I had my like core group of friends, but the idea of dating, if it wasn't on my radar, it was something that I was like scared of and didn't want to pursue. At right. that time, I know this guy had a crush on me in like grade 11. I don't think he'll listen, but he knows who he is, Dan. <laughs> and um, like there was all this buildup in my music class because we were all really close in the music class our, right. our year. We still are kind of family. Like we, it's the kind of family that you don't see for years. But when you do, you just pick up where you left off. And there was this whole buildup in the class like, oh, he's going to bring you flowers. Like, what's your favorite kind of flower? And he chickened out. So like this whole like what could have been this first thing became nothing because he chickened out. He didn't do anything. <laughs> Right. Other than that, like my first real like boyfriend wasn't till first year university. Okay, so, so you, you're, you're I was a late a bloomer. It was a slow start. I was yeah. a late bloomer. Yeah. I can I can definitely relate to that. According to the research I did by having you as a friend on Facebook, I understand that you and Dana got married in 2016. So when did you first meet him? Dana and I knew each other in high school, but he was two years ahead of me, so mm -hmm. we never talked. But we sang in choir, and I always knew him as the bass who like made really bad jokes and was really obnoxious and fucking annoying. Like that was how <laughs> I knew Dana in high school. And I was like the young, quiet, insecure girl. <laughs> right. Right. We never even really spoke during high school at all, but we knew of each other. We knew of each other's existence. Like Dana says, he remembers me as like young woman with the huge voice. Like that's how he remembers me, but we never talked or anything. Years go by, he graduates high school and cut to, I'm in fourth year university finishing my music degree. Part of what you had to do to complete your degree was you had to be in an ensemble of some kind. I joined the university choir, which at the time, I think it still is, was also open to the community if you wanted it to be. If you wanted to come join, you could. And our high school choral director got the gig as the new conductor of the university choir. Hence, everyone who had known her from Blueville, where she was the music teacher, right. clamored to join the choir because we all loved the experience. So Dana, now a guy working in the work world, the real world, mm -hmm. joined the choir. Then it was kind of one of those lock eyes moments that you took. Uh -huh. We remembered each other and knew each other. And he kind of came in and like walked down the stairs and our eyes kind of locked. Oh. And I was like, 
that guy. Like I'd forgotten about him. From there, he, for six months, he really awkwardly stared at me during choir and would like try to get in on like the in jokes that like I would have with my friend in the alto section. We'd like have this kind of like unspoken dialogue with each other during rehearsal. And then he would awkwardly flirt with me. It took him six months to ask me out. That's when we actually started dating. So that was 2010. Aw. So that whole thing was your transatlantic voyage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I, I have known you now for a couple of years and I, st- I still haven't met Dana, but I props on being the, the lady killer he, he was to, to get such a talented, cool person. But I would love to meet him if only for the fact that his name, Dana... Like his first name is Dana, as in Dana Carvey, my favorite former SNL cast member. And his last yes. name is Harrison, the last name of my favorite Beatle. So he's already in my good book. Meant to be best friends. As if my books <laughs> have any value. Anyway. He'd be happy to know that because every time people bring up the name Dana, they're like, oh, that's a girl's name. And so the fact that you brought up Dana Carvey, he'd be like, yes, <laughs> you're already in his good book, I'm sure. The thought is. I've found joy whenever I've turned away from being locked on the idea of trying to be a part of something. It is a shitty thing to sort of be rejected from something. And it's either not personal or just, but still feeling unfair. And there are labels and groups and communities and initiatives that make it seem sometimes like the door is open, but really they're favoritists. There are people who fail to recognize talent and eagerness to be a part of things. It is a shitty thing. And sometimes people get away with murder when all they had to do is say, hey, we're a closed, close-knit group and this is what we're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's exquisite joy in building something of your own that can become something that other people want to be a part of. And in your heart, you can feel good that it towers over that thing that you once wanted to be a part of. The end of the black and white movie with the very serendipitous triumph music. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I, I honestly think that like there are people who are the true triple threat, right? They sing really well, they can dance and move really well, and they can act really well. I consider myself a good actor through my singing. Like I, I study lyrics like they're a script and I... Mm-hmm. You emote. emote with them, but I'm hell not a dancer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know, when I see people like on at the Stratford Festival or on Broadway and they're moving like that, it's like I'm so in awe of that. Yeah, there's people who do that so well, and like mm-hmm. I'd rather do what I do really well on a stage with my band, and I can emote and I can act, but I can stay still. <laughs> or I can just, right. you know. So I feel like I'm not the triple threat that. There's like musical theater performers. I'm in awe of them. Like the professional yeah. music, musical theater performers who can do it all equally well. Holy crap. Amazing. And I just wasn't that ever. Right. <laughs> no, same, same thing. And you know what? I, I, don't, I don't even think I could do either of the three things more than a tiny little bit. Like <laughs> all of which is to say that I like you am just in complete awe of seeing people that could not only remember an entire dance choreography, but also execute it in front of you once perfectly. Mind-blowing. Who do you think of as the ultimate vocalist? Oh my God. There's so many of like in their own genre. You yourself also sing in more than one genre. So that's not... Well, what about your genre? To me, there's different people who are masters of different (coughs) things. Like in my own genre, jazz, Let's say that's my genre. Who knows what my genre is anymore, but let's call it jazz. 
to me, Ella's the master of improv and Frank Sinatra is the master of phrasing. You know, someone like Mel Torme might be the master of style and like putting those two things together. Right. But then someone like Sarah Vaughn, like that voice, like what? Right. God, I think I listen to people in my own genre for different things. Right. Mm-hmm. To me, I don't listen to Ella to hear a lyric interpreted in a really beautiful way. I might get slandered for saying this, but I don't think Ella was the best at that. Ella was so much about the style and about the improv, and but it's so clean and so precise and so perfect the way she does it, that it's like, that's the masterclass. Like, that's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but if I want to cry and listen to someone, I'm not going to turn Ella on. Because <laughs> to right. me, maybe because she wasn't an actor, I don't get that from her all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone like Sinatra, he wasn't even in tune half the time. Yeah. But the, the way he approached a lyric and would sing it, it's like, oh, I finally understand what that song means now. Because you hear it, the way he says it, it's like he's speaking it. Like he's so masterful at that piece of it. And then sometimes I just want to listen to like beautiful tone and like beautiful interpretation. And to me, like if you hear Sarah Vaughn sing Lullaby Birdland, she's not changing like one note of what's on the page, but she's like grooving the shit out of it. And she, and her tone is so luscious and gorgeous. that it's like, Oh, but then there's other singers that I'll listen to who are not like, I was t- classically trained. I don't really sing like that anymore, but there's singers that I'll listen to in the opera world. And it's like, Oh, that's just exquisite. And how they're producing that sound. I'm just so like, I'll listen to it for that reason. Joyce DiDonato is such a beautiful opera singer, but she also emotes at the same time. It's not just about the sound. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I appreciate about people, that it's not just about their sound, but like, what are they saying and how are they saying it? I love a singer who like, you can turn on and you instantly know who it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can turn on Diana Krall and like her or not, you just, you know, it's Diana Krall, you yeah. know? I love that about singers. And All those are the singers that I love the most too. Even I know more singers. I just remember Diana Krall's was the first CD I bought that wasn't just the idea that like, if I was to ask someone in their 20s, like, do you like jazz at all? And the only one that most would know about would be Diana Krall, maybe. Yeah. Thanks to the obvious, uh, oh, that's all the jazz out there. I'm not the biggest Diana Krall fan on the planet, but I have to respect the fact that she came onto the scene as this person who like sang and played for herself and, and she knew her voice. She knew her place. She knew where her style belonged and she knew how to interpret it and she took it and ran with it. And I have to applaud that, you know? As far as rating singers goes, like I wouldn't say that she's someone who blows my mind, but there's a quality of how I feel when I'm listening to her that's just really, really enjoyable, if that's fair to say. Um, Totally. But I also just, I get enjoyment from listening to you or ensemble music where it's standout, stand-up, applause-worthy, and also pleasing. I feel like I gave myself a task in this episode of, of being out of sequence and being an asshat of a host. But I'm very happy that I got to learn a bit more about your life story and like both as your friend and as this being our third podcast. You know, if it has to wait, the third chapter of any trilogy is is always a good point to actually go there. Every time you're on the show is a joy for me. Thank you. I love being on your show. I feel like we dove delve deep today. It was fun. I think in a perfect world, I aka like without coronavirus and I was sort of putting this together last year but I would love to like host a live show that's a combination of these podcast type conversations but in front of an audience but recorded Ooh, I'd love that but you and 
some accompaniment would be the band and also you would be the co-hosts like sort of a combination of Andy Richter and Max Weinberg. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I'd love that. That'd be and so much fun. I want to thank uh, this classy Dane for coming on the show once again. And uh, <laughs> you can find her on Facebook. <laughs> What's a Facebook? It's 1945. And your Facebook page, you are still findable as a teacher. You're doing these wicked awesome performances. You're doing Facebook live performances, right? Where people can be in the moment with you. I was doing that in March and then that got kind of exhausting. I was doing a daily fundraiser. That's why I was going live. So we raised like $2,000 for local musicians. So that was pretty awesome. Right now I'm doing more pre-recorded stuff and then uploading it. But I think I'm going to go live again soon because it's fun to talk with people live. Sorry, I, I I lost it. This is not something a good host does. <laughs> no, you're great. You're a great host. I love you. Oh, just a basic thing. Where can people find you online? And and I know and I that you have and I want to tell people that you have an amazing album. You're going to hear from me. Uh, still available on disc. Yes, and I have been doing port drop offs. I think I have five physical CDs left in this house. I have a few with another friend. One of my singer friends accidentally took a few of my CDs home with him after a gig. The only ones that I have in this house right now, I think there's like five left. And I have been doing porch drop-offs. You can find me online. My Facebook is just my name, Mary Catherine Pisano. And my Twitter is at MC Jazz Vocalist. And that's my Instagram too. As we spoke about before, you're doing another performance. And this song is called... uh, let me just look. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to edit it. It's not going to sound like I forgot. It's called uh, <laughs> Take Me to the World. It's from a TV musical production back when they did TV musicals in the 60s, or maybe the, the late 50s, called Evening Primrose by Stephen Sondheim. And it's about these characters who are trapped in a department store. <laughs> so there's songs in it that are totally appropriate for this isolation time. So I picked um, Take Me to the World um, by Stephen Sondheim because he's so amazing. He's such a genius. I've been finding a lot of refuge in his music right now. See?
somewhere I can walk for miles. Take me to the You are a doll, a dame, uh, a god to me, but in reality, a wonderful friend, person, very talented person. And thank you again. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. I've missed you. Missed you too. All, all the best to you and Dana in, in the South, <laughs> in Ontario. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Todd Donald Show. Starring, produced, and edited by Todd Donald. The piano music in the rap is by J.P. Sunga who you can find at jpsunga.com. The theme music is Mackie Alkino by William Chernoff. Find him at chernoff.band. And I'm Milo Axelrod, Todd's favorite bar none human voice. And I'm not bragging, he wrote this. If you'd like to hear more of my voice, check out my podcast, Describing a Rock, in which I describe some rocks. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Please support The Todd Donald Show by sharing it with anyone who might enjoy it. Follow and interact with at Todd Donald Show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you feel like going the extra mile on iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review, preferably in its favor. Have a great day, friends. (laughs) 